0: Revelation chapter 14, verse 6 to 13. Let's give our attentive uh, listening to the reading of God's holy inerrant word. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God. And give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink. And their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for this time where uh, we get to receive uh, from your own lips your truth. Uh, from the, your own words. Uh, so God, uh, give us ears to hear and hearts to receive. And Lord, we ask that you you do the work that is necessary in our hearts to, to conform us uh, to the image of your Son, uh, using your word and your truth. Help us, uh, Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, We're continuing in our series in the book of Revelation, and... Um, today we land on a passage that addresses everybody's favorite topic, God's final judgment and hell. Uh, Not many of you woke up this morning uh, looking forward to church, thinking, I'm going to go and listen to a sermon on hell. Um, A couple of things I want to just say as a preface before we jump in. For one, whenever you encounter a passage in Scripture that kind of rub you the wrong way or or may may appear offensive to you, um, I want to say take heart because there's something actually very encouraging about that. Um, If nothing in the scriptures offend you, uh, if nothing in the Bible ever rubs you the wrong way, God is probably just a figment of your own imagination. Somehow, everything in the scriptures, somehow everything about God just is perfectly in sync with everything you already believe, everything you find comfortable. That's probably not God, but your imaginary God. If God is God and his truth is timeless, his truth is bound to offend something about our time, something about our culture. How do, how do you know you're encountering the true God? Well, at some point, he's got to offend you. At some point, <laughs> some point it's something about scripture has to bother you. Uh, And this might be one of those things. Uh, Another thing about uh, final judgment and hell is it's more helpful to look at it through a scriptural lens that addresses a a fuller picture than a phrase here and a phrase there that's sort of been picked out of the, the scriptures. Selective reading leads to inaccurate reading of things. So here we have a full vision picture where you have a lot of things going on. Three angels giving you three different pictures, painting one whole thing. And as we unpack that, let's see how what we see behind uh, the judgment of God. What we see more than just the judgment of God. Let's see it through a scriptural lens. And um, we're going through our questioning Christianity group on Saturdays, where we, we ask any questions about. And the the coming Saturday, we're addressing christianity and various controversies and the reason why hell isn't on there is because we're addressing it here but you're free to bring additional questions to our meeting this coming saturday at at the qc group Um, for today we're going to try to use this as a template and see what this reveals to us about god's judgment and also hell three things i want to unpack and show you that's sort of lying behind this picture of judgment there is a gospel behind the judgment There is an awakening behind the judgment. There's a warning behind the judgment, okay? So a gospel, an awakening, and there's actually a warning as well. These three, all right? So first, what's the gospel behind the judgment? Verse 6 says, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people, okay? It says eternal gospel, which is interesting because gospel means good news. So this is eternal good news in the context of the angel talking about the judgment of God. Here's the judgment of God. And by the way, eternal good news. Um, Look at verse 7, how he just immediately goes into that. He said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him. Who made heaven and earth the sea and the springs of water okay let's unpack what this means okay first fear him why why fear him it says because the hour of his judgment has come Uh, meaning he is a judge and to be judged by him is a is a fearsome thing um But on a broader level, on a a more universal level, this is is also true. We fear judges in general. We we fear being judged in general. And it's only a matter of, okay, uh, where are your treasures? What do you worship that makes you care more about certain judges than others? Uh, For example, if you worship people's approval, that's where your treasures are. Uh, People are your judge and their disapproval is your greatest fear. And uh, if they do disapprove of you, that is your sin and your guilty verdict. Uh, if you worship success, then you fear those who evaluate your success. Um, failure in their eyes is your guilty verdict and sin. If you worship money, you fear the, the haves and you fear being a have-not because that would render you guilty. That would make you a sinner in their eyes. Uh, If you worship beauty, you'll fear either the person or the culture that defines beauty, depending on the context you're in, and for you, your sin would be being unattractive to them, being unwanted. You could also worship, quote-unquote, whatever's normal in your society and what's normal to your peers, and so you fear them, and, and, and the worst thing that could ever happen to you is being labeled as abnormal. That's the ultimate guilty verdict. So fear, uh, judgment, sin, judge, these are all, in a sense, terms that are not unique to Christianity but universal to everyone. And it reveal, it tends to reveal to you, based on you know, what it is that you fear, the judge you fear, what you truly worship. What do you truly worship? Okay. The point in verse 7 is this. It's telling us, There is a true God who we ought to worship as the only God because He's the Creator of heaven and earth and everyone in it, and you ought to fear Him. The whole universe is subject to Him. Heaven and earth is subject to Him, so His judgment is true, and that's the one that you you must be most conscious of. Um, You can think about how we are subject already to God's laws of physics. Right? We can't operate outside of that. We we operate with His laws of nature, laws of logic. Okay, try escaping that. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live with self-contradictions. Wait, try, don't try that, actually. Uh, when we're bound by all these laws, what we sometimes forget is we're also bound by his moral laws. Moral laws. One of the things I, found, I find really fascinating and interesting about all these multiverse plot lines in movies these days, whether it's Doctor Strange or Everything Everywhere All At Once, all these multiverses. You know what's fascinating most fascinating to me, is the multiverse is never multi-moral. Somehow in every universe, kindness is a good thing. Somehow in every universe, uh, a family united is better than a family divided. Somehow in every universe, uh, it's it's good to forgive. It's virtuous to forgive someone and give them a second chance. The multiverse is not multi-moral. There's only one moral law. Fear him is an invitation to be aware of that moral reality because you're subject to it. Whether you realize it or not, you are subject to it. How is that gospel? Um, How is the fear of God's judgment good news? Well, here's one for starters. Think about all the things that we are tempted to fear other than God and realize in the fear of the Lord, you're set free from all those other fears if you fear the lord you don't have to fear all those other things if you don't fear the lord you're subject to every kind of fear Um, that's one reason here's another reason Uh, think about in the absence of god's judgment his his final ultimate judgment what happens to all the evil all the violence all the suffering warfare uh, wrong committed against innocent people the greed all the corruption all the hatred if none of these things are ultimately charged, put an end to by God's judgment, then we have a a fear of a worse kind to deal with, fear of evil in the absence of a solution, Uh, fear of evil in the face of helplessness and hopelessness. Um, But if God's judgment ultimately puts an end to all these wrongs, then the fear of God is a reason why we don't have to fear these things. We have an answer to all these things if we know the fear of the Lord. And and because God then becomes our ultimate avenger, we don't have to avenge ourselves. Um, Also, if there is no judgment of God in the afterlife, I'm I'm afraid that would also mean we don't really live in a morally meaningful universe uh, where there's ultimate moral accountability, where people... If people can do all kinds of evil and simply get away with it, uh, justice isn't real. It's a made-up concept. It's a fantasy. It's, it's a made-up concept to make you temporarily feel as though you're living a meaningful moral life, but ultimately you're not. In the absence of God's final judgment, uh, Dostoevsky is right. All things are permissible. You don't even have an incentive to live righteously or altruistically in a godless universe because a godless universe doesn't care. Ultimately, everything is forgotten. Everything becomes meaningless in the end. The senselessness of that, right, uh, of living in a universe where good and evil don't exist and there's only power and, and, and weakness, which is a direct quote pretty much out of Harry Potter, uh, Voldemort. Uh, that is the universe we end up with in the absence of God's final and ultimate judgment. Okay. But with God, there's good news. There's a gospel, an eternal gospel. It says, God is truly good and he will truly therefore defeat evil. Every crooked line will be made straight. Every wrong will be made right. No injustice, no abuse ever overlooked. Everything we do, therefore, matters morally in the here and now because it will matter in eternity. Remember the scene in Gladiator where Maximus rallies the soldiers by saying, what we do here, echoes in eternity. And, and what happens to the soldiers? Yeah, they're riled up and they're ready to go. If there is significance in eternity, it gets you going. But if it ends in death, and it doesn't matter whether you're Mother Teresa or Adolf Hitler, in the end, everything is forgotten and nothing matters. Why? Why? Not only that, uh, we've also been learning throughout the book of Revelation that the Lamb of God, who was slain, he stands to intercede, represent those who violated God's moral law, and he offers himself on their behalf to be their substitute sacrifice for sin. So, for those who trust in the Lamb, when you stand before this universal moral lawgiver and judge, you stand tall, and you receive the verdict of righteousness innocent that's the ultimate good news here this is the eternal gospel that in the lamb of god we have forgiveness of sins and adoption as children of god we no longer relate to god simply as a judge simply as creatures but as father and children as friends so what this judgment reveals to god's people at least is uh, you have a father in heaven You have a gospel in heaven, and it is God himself. This picture of judgment points us to him for the people of God. So that's the announcement of the first angel, the the gospel behind the judgment. And then then we get to the second point, and that is the awakening that's also behind the judgment. Uh, Take a look at verse 8. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Now, we're going to see more of this Babylon and what the city of Babylon symbolizes in chapters 17, 18 in the book of Revelation. Uh, for now, let me just tell you that for the first century Christians, Babylon was code for pagan power that is uh, persecuting the Christian church. First uh, Peter 5.13, for example, Rome itself is referred to as Babylon. And that's not because there's some kind of ethnic connection. It's a spiritual connection. Uh, it was referring to Roman persecution of the church as uh, Babylonian. And and that's another way of referring to Satan and and the evil forces and things like that. Uh, Verse 8 is actually also a very clear reference to Isaiah 21, where it says in verse 9, Fallen, fallen is Babylon. right? exact same words. And all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. So Isaiah and Revelation are essentially communicating the the, the same thing. uh, That systems of idols in this world okay, wherein people worship all kinds of things and fear all sorts of things and are subjecting themselves to all kinds of judgments, these systems will ultimately fall. Uh, they won't stand. Why? Because they're already fallen, right? This past tense is used, fallen, fallen. In a sense, they never stood. They were never standing. These were house of cards, never without foundation, without, without security. Uh, whether it's in the socio-political sphere, economic sphere, cultural sphere, things that dominate human life and severing them from the creator of the world, these systems will fall apart. No matter how busy you become with them, when they fall apart, you will also fall apart. They've fallen. And the people in that city will also likewise fall. Notice also how it says in this this city of Babylon, made... All the other nations drink the wine of the passions of her sexual immorality. That means um, these systems of idols, right, or worldliness, as you know, uh, the apostle would call it, it has a great amount of power and influence over the inhabitants of Babylon, the people who dwell in that system. It, it makes compliance to these idols very easy uh, and, and seem right, actually. It's effortless, uh, complying to uh, idols uh, in the world. And in fact, that's, in cor- according to this verse, that's in reality being drunk on the world and its passions uh, and its immorality. Uh, what is it saying? You need to sober up. Right? You need to awaken to this reality. Okay? What is truly good, meaningful, really worth living and dying for? Um, what's temporary as opposed to eternal? Okay? Like I mentioned last week, Uh, The world has a way of keeping our daily consciousness fully occupied with things that we will not miss on our deathbed in our final hour. Uh, A successful career, good amount of money, big enough house, nice body image. All the things you will not miss and I will not miss on our deathbed. Uh, The world has a way of keeping our daily consciousness occupied with those very things. Okay. Being busy about those very things. Okay. Being most invested uh, in those very things. And that, according to this verse, is uh, getting drunk with Babylon. Uh, not, not seeing reality as you, as you ought to. But see, the more you stare at this picture of the final judgment, right, you come to an awakening, if you will. Okay. Uh, there's an eternal awakening in this picture where God's people will never be subject to blindness again. Their eyes will be forever open to the true beauty and goodness and glory of God. Their eyes will be so opened, they'll never fall into another temptation. Think about that. Their eyes will be so open to the glory of God, they will never even feel tempted by another sin. Uh, There's a wonderful prophecy in Isaiah chapter 42 where God says, I am the Lord. I will give you as a covenant of my people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those to those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord; that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass; the new things I now declare. This language about bringing the prisoners out from the dungeon, opening the eyes that are blind, uh, delivering people out of their darkness. That's essentially what Revelation is talking about here, being delivered out of Babylon. It's the same theme. God's people's eyes being forever opened, never falling again into the old way, old life, old deception. Okay? Think about this. When the kingdom of God comes, there will never be another fall. None of the people of God, the billions of people of God, none of them will ever trip ever again in sin. That's how eye open they will be. That's how awakened they will be because Babylon will fall and will be no more. And the more we look at that future picture of our full awakening, that should cause us now, even now, uh, to live in that state of uh, awakenness, anticipating the end. This gives us a reason to be sober now, live freed from our sins and idols now. God is giving you a new eye to see something uh, that only God's people will see at the end. He's showing you a preview of it now. Be awakened to this now. So the judgment of God gives us that picture too. Okay. Lastly, um, the judgment of God does give us something very helpful, and that is a warning, a very stern warning, starting from verse 9. Let's look at verse 9 and 10. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, pour full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb. Uh, In my opinion, this is the judgment of God stated in its strongest, most fearsome form so far in the book of Revelation. It is the fullness of God's wrath. the full strength of God's anger. Make no mistake about it, it's, it's talking about hell. And we see hell appearing in various texts in the scriptures. Uh, we don't deny it as a reality. Jesus, interestingly, is the one who talks, talked most about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. Um, not only in the Gospels, but given that this revelation is a revelation of Jesus Christ, he's talking about it a lot here too. He's not shying away from it, and neither should we. Um, And so we should take this seriously and seek to address it, understand it, question it, if you will, but wrestle with it. Um, How is hell described here? Uh, It does use terms like fire and sulfur, which is a common associated kind of terminology with hell. But you should know these aren't the only terms used to describe hell in the Bible. There's also the language of gloom and darkness. And a lot more language about spiritual and psychological torment than physical suffering. Uh, The key word in in, in our passage is torment. Verse 10 says torment. Verse 11, it appears again. Uh, It doesn't talk about being burned. It talks about being tormented. Now, one of the challenges that people have with this kind of language in the Bible is it it conjures up this image of God uh, forever and ever, keeping himself busy, uh, intentionally torturing people, uh, suffering in hell. And God takes this sadistic pleasure in in making that his full-time job. That is not at all an accurate uh, description of what the Bible actually talks about. First of all, what torment means. It means, essentially, there's a lack of rest. Uh, What does verse 13 say about those who are blessed and die in the Lord? They rest forever. Why? Because they find their hearts, their mind, their body, every part of their being satisfied, gratified in their true object of worship. The more they worship this God, they come alive. They're satisfied. What's happening in hell? Their objects of worship are leaving them eternally restless. Constant torment. Uh, In a sense, I think you and I know on a very much smaller scale (laughs) and an earthly scale what this kind of looks like. Uh, When we worship the wrong things, when we worship the, the beast, in other words, which is just a symbol for idols, are we not more anxious, more fearful, more overworked, more stressed out, more jealous, more bitter, more rude, more harsh, more prideful. Do we not turn slightly devilish and beastly and demonic when we worship the wrong things? Okay. Um, blow that up on a global scale <laughs> for all eternity. That's hell. Uh, plus, the doctrines of God's common grace and providence teaches us that there's a whole lot of evil in this world that God, as we speak, is restraining and stopping from happening, in other words, without letting evil take its natural course. Um, What are examples? We don't know because he's restraining them. We don't see it happening. When evil takes its natural course and we we see it manifesting, uh, we we tend to blame God for them, or or at least our culture does. Um, But we don't give him any credit for his common grace and his providence restraining all kinds of evil because we don't see them. Why don't we see them? Because he restrained them. <laughs> but there comes a time when he will make his common grace and his providence depart. And what, what would only remain of his grace is his saving grace for his people in his kingdom, in his new Jerusalem, and his eternal governance. But his common grace and his providence that used to be in Babylon will leave once this chapter is done, this chapter in his redemptive story so okay take all these data points and and think about what hell means then what does that make hell zero restraining of evil zero restraining of evil full-blown consequences of worshiping the wrong thing on a massive global scale where billions and billions of people are drunk on their own greed Lust, selfishness, hatred, violence, bitterness, racism, pride. That collective existence for all eternity is hell. If you're wondering, oh, but why, why, does, uh, why doesn't God give them an equal chance in, in repenting and being forgiven? Well, I believe God has. I believe that's implied in verse 10. It says that they will drink the wine of God's wrath and the full strength of the cup of his anger in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. In the presence of the Lamb, who's offered himself as their way to being forgiven, uh, being renewed, being resurrected, being adopted into the family of God. In the presence of that Lamb, they choose to drink the cup of wrath. in denying the, the premise of the gospel that we are fallen, sinful human beings who have defied our creator. Right? In denying that premise uh, and holding on to self-righteousness, they refuse to drink God's cup of forgiveness and kindness. They instead choose the cup of wrath. So what C.S. Lewis said is true here. Uh, the gates of hell are not just closed from the outside, but from the inside too. A peep, there's a people inside who deliberately and defiantly say, "We don't want the lamb. We don't want to acknowledge our sins." What a what an intolerant, uh, bigoted thing to say. That we have sin issues. So they they want to keep them out. This casting out business is a two way street this eternal judgment is a two-way street that yes the sinless lamb of god will judge cast out sinners for being unrepentant from his presence forever and unrepentant sinners will judge and cast out the sinless lamb of god from their lives forever as well there is as it were this unspoken agreement between the two parties nobody who wants to be with the lamb will be separated from the lamb Everybody who wants to be with the Lamb will be with the Lamb. Everyone who recognizes their sins and wants to be forgiven by the Lamb will be forgiven by the Lamb. But those who want to claim to be sinless and uh, feel entitled to no judgment, uh, then they will in turn turn around and judge the Lamb. They're basically calling the Lamb a, a false accuser, which is what Satan is. They're basically calling the Lamb the devil, for lying, for being a harsh judge, or, like I said, more colloquially, you're a bigot. That's their judgment on him. Judgment is a two-way street. The only question is, whose judgment is true and more consequential? Who will be on the right side of history or eternity? This passage is telling us, warning us, it will be the Lamb of God who, who stands tall on the right side of eternity, so be sure you're standing with Him. Trust in Him. Take the cup of kindness instead of the cup of wrath. Look to the one who is courageous enough, loving enough, merciful enough to drink your cup of wrath for you so you would only drink from His cup of kindness. The the calling here and the warning here is to choose the Lamb, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, why he still may be found. Choose him, choose life. And as the Church of Christ, we were also given this final word of encouragement in verses 12 and 13. So let's close with that. In verse 12, it says, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God, and their faith in Jesus. Okay, this is God, in a sense, recognizing the labor The endurance of his saints he is cheering you on and he is saying continue and do not give up carrying your cross now the day of rest is coming until that day carry your cross follow me is what he's saying do you know how you carry your cross in your day-to-day it's in every way you imitate Christ and seek to live more like Him and less like the world. That's your cross. You're carrying your cross when you, when you try to love someone who's difficult to love. When you love someone unequally and sacrificially, where you feel like you're, you're giving 90 and you're only getting 10. Uh, you're carrying a cross in a world that hates your beliefs. You're carrying your cross in choosing to share Your beliefs with those who hate your beliefs and doing so with gentleness and respect when that's not reciprocated that is a cross you're carrying your cross in your seasons of loss of trials of grief as you hope in the Lord you're carrying your cross in your sickness whether that is physical spiritual or mental As you hold fast to Christ and His promise of His mercies that are new every morning and sufficient for you, you're carrying your cross. You carry your cross when you choose holiness rather than temporary pleasures. You're carrying your cross when you choose to do everything God's way rather than the world's way, when you choose obedience over convenience. You're carrying your cross when you're expending yourself rather than accumulating for yourself. In all these ways, you're carrying a cross. Why? Because you chose Christ. You chose the land. You've chosen the land. You are the true people of God, the true church, the true Israel of God, for whom the final judgment is, well done. Your final judgment will be a final benediction. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's why you're carrying your cross. To the finish line this is a call for the saints to endure run the race finish the race fight the good fight carry your cross to the end until you hear the lamb audibly physically saying to you well done good and faithful servant until then we carry our cross until then we we drink continually his cup of kindness, which is what we're about to do for those of us who who believe in this gospel. We're gonna come to the table, partake of the body and blood of Christ and drink from his cup of kindness. So let's look forward to doing that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for this picture of your judgment. Um, It may be unpleasant, it may be challenging, uh, it may be tough to swallow, but uh, Lord, that's how we know this is from you it's not something we would have made up help us to embrace your truth um, and help us to heed your loving warning to turn to the lamb to cling to the lamb to trust in the lamb and to partake even of the lamb uh, at your table lord help us to uh, taste and see the gospel as we come to the table um, And bless us, bless us with a renewed sense of reassurance, renewed commitment to continue to carry our cross, and perhaps there are areas in our lives where we refuse to. Give us a a renewed uh, strength to pick up our cross and follow you in those very areas. Strengthen us, Lord, um, by yourself, by uh, our receiving of you. We ask this in your son's name, amen.